I'm Josh Klein. And I'm Elise Hugh. We host a podcast from Accenture called Built for Change. Every part of every business is being reinvented right now. That means companies are facing brand new pressures to use fast evolving technologies and address shifting consumer expectations. But with big changes come even bigger opportunities. We've talked with leaders from every corner of the business world to learn how they're harnessing change to totally reinvent their companies. And how you can do it too. Subscribe to Built for Change now so you don't miss an episode. like to be Joe Biden right now? To find out, I called the one person who would know. Hello. Hey, how, how are you, you? Good, good. How's it going? <laughs> you know, Groundhog Day every day. <laughs> it's been four years since Hillary Clinton faced off against Donald Trump. Love her, hate her. She's still one of the most polarizing figures in American politics. And she's not even in politics anymore. She's in her attic in Chappaqua, New York, podcasting just like me. Hillary, what are those things behind you? May I ask you, are those home videos behind you? Yes, that's like an ancient DVD <laughs> I, collection. I see that. Yeah, wow. Yeah, no, I mean, wow. back in the day when those were the thing to have, we, I guess, sadly collected a lot of them. <laughs> All right, they're very, I like you. I'll give you a Room Raider 8, if you don't mind. <laughs> well, Room Raider gave me a 10, so you're, oh, they did. you're, oh, you're, sorry. you're really out <laughs> of it. Mine is like a zero, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> anyway, you're a podcast star now, apparently, from what I understand. <laughs> or a podcaster, anyway. <laughs> Who would you really like to interview? I'm, I'm thinking Trump. You got to do Trump, right? No, never. What? I would never. never? What no. are you talking about? Why not? No, Because no. I wanted, I, ta- I like to talk to people that I'm interested in and admire, and I don't find him interesting or admirable. He's like your arch enemy. You wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, not at all. I'll let you not, do that. I'll let you do that. I'll no, put in a good you. word for you. To, oh, that's okay. Uh, to get him in the chair, so to speak. I would love to interview uh, Chancellor Merkel and Prime Minister Ardern because I want to keep lifting up what it means to be a woman in power. You know, 25 years ago, obviously, I said, you know, women's rights are human rights. And we had a rights agenda and we've made progress in a number of areas, both here and globally. But we're still behind when it comes to business and the economy, politics and government, security and peace. So I would like to do what I can to lift up people who've been on the front lines and try to acclimate American voters to the idea of a woman president. Agreed. So we have a ton of stuff to talk about. Good. Because I just Good. reread again your your piece in Foreign Policy. I read your Atlantic piece again. You're all over the place. It's really... Well, I got a lot of time on my hands. A lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> Hillary Clinton, colon, she has a lot of time on her hands. Um, you know, you talk a lot about power recently. A lot of your pieces have been about power. Mm-hmm. What is it like now to be in a position without levers of power? Well, I think I have a really powerful voice. You know, I just shot a video supporting women in Belarus. I just tweeted out against the violence in Nigeria because people called me. So I have a, a global standing. I feel very good about what I can do. Okay. So what is it like not to be campaigning this time around? And what were you doing four years ago? You know, four years ago, it was obviously the final sprint to the end. We were feeling good about our campaign, and it's hard to compare what's happening in 2020 with what happened in 2016 or really any campaign before then. 
So I, I think about that a lot because I'm zooming all over the place to raise money, to do events, to talk to voters and all. But it's not the same feeling of just, you know, exhilaration and anxiety that you feel toward the end of a long campaign. You thought you were going to win. You felt Absolutely. like... Yeah. thought I was going to win. So did everybody else. I mean, I know... Uh, People look back now and say, well, it wasn't, you know, it, we were going to win. We were absolutely going to win. And I think the the principal reason why we ended up not winning those uh, three states that uh, we thought we were going to win uh, was the Comey letter, because we could literally chart what happened from before and after. And we could see polling and we knew we were dropping. I thought that I had stop the drop that it had, you know, hit the bottom. But we also learned afterwards how people were searching on Google, trying to make sense of it. What did it mean? So there was a lot of voter angst as well. So why was there that angst, though? I mean, because in some cases, Biden's getting different kinds of attacks and whether it's his son or, or something else. Why did it work with you? Do you think? Well, I think it worked with me because it was the first time, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, you know, shame on me. And I think a lot of voters aren't going to be fooled again. You know, there were academic studies done afterwards, lots of them, about why people ended up not voting for me. And it was shocking what they believed. I mean, the disinformation was incredibly pervasive. And one uh, very influential piece of totally false news was Pope Francis had endorsed Trump. And where did they get that? They got that delivered in their Facebook feeds. And one was that I was dying. I was constantly dying. and Still I'm, not dead? Yeah. I am still, so far as I know, walking and talking and breathing. But you could just see how intense the disinformation campaign was. And it was something people had never experienced before. So when you think about it, do you blame yourself for anything then? Or do you feel like it was just this train that's headed right towards you? No, look, I, I mean, I tried to take responsibility. Ultimately, it was, you know, my campaign. But we were facing unprecedented challenges. And those are not unprecedented anymore. I mean, the Russians interfered. Who believed it? We couldn't get people to believe it. Everybody now knows it happened. And we're being told it is happening right now in real time. And I think people are, as I said, you know, more on alert, willing to entertain the possibility that maybe something they're seeing is not accurate. The social media platforms, particularly Facebook, were oblivious or negligent in what they let on and had no real standards for any level of accuracy. So there were just a lot of pieces of this perfect storm that were at work. And that's what was going on then. It is still going on. I mean, if you still look at shared pieces on Facebook, they're all aimed at people using sophisticated targeting to try to influence how they feel about Joe Biden, for example. But now I just think, you know, this has been in the atmosphere. People are more aware, and I don't think they're as easily uh, manipulated as they were before. Right. But it never ends, too, because uh, when after Trump pressed him, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, job that you used to have, announced that the State Department would work to release your emails again, but the emails. What do you what is going to be in those emails? Nothing. Nothing. That's the point. There never was anything. You know, one of the great mysteries of this whole nonsense was if you read them, you know, they're posted online. They've been released. They're out there in the in the domain, all the work emails. There's nothing in them. 
But what they do is they take these emails that were frankly pretty boring, if you want to really know the truth about them, and they begin to try to manipulate them or they pull them out of context or they make up whole cloth crazy stories about them. And people, unfortunately, believe they're getting kind of a behind-the-scenes look. Like, oh, you know, this this is an email. And, oh, all of a sudden, they're talking about cheese on pizza. Well, maybe that is a secret message. And then you have a whole cottage industry of these conspirators. So with these emails, when you heard that he was going to do that, what did you think? I thought pathetic. It's pathetic. pathetic. It's, it, yeah, it's pathetic. One of the things that's still amazing, though, is you are continually invoked at Trump rallies. You're even in an ad for your old friend, Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. How do you still feel that it still works? Why does it work with you? It does. I, I have relatives who are like, Hillary Clinton's, well, and I'm like, she ain't running. She's a, she's a house, suburban housewife at this point. So, <laughs> like, I mean. No, well, no, I, I think there are several factors. I think that Trump and a lot of the people around him know that his victory was not on the up and up. They had an extensive campaign to suppress black voters. We now know much more about that than we did. They had third party candidates boosted, particularly by Russian media. And the lies and uh, ridiculous stories made up about me were meant to either keep you at home or drive you third party if they couldn't get you to vote for Trump. So there's an air of illegitimacy that surrounds Trump's presidency, and that just infuriates them. It makes them crazy, and that's a big piece of it. So they have to keep striking out at me because— Why you? Why? Well, because I was the candidate that they basically stole an election from. I was the candidate who won, you know, nearly three million more votes. So no matter how they cut it, it wasn't the kind of win that people said, okay, wasn't my candidate, but okay. This election is still front and center in people's psyches. And people fight about it every day online because there is a— deep sense of unfairness and just dismissiveness toward his victory. And he knows it. So part of what he's doing by attacking me is trying to shore up himself. The other thing is, you know, they've been attacking me on the right for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Well, you did talk about a vast... Yeah, uh, vast right-wing conspiracy. This is There's nothing new about their relentless attacks on me. Sadly, the internet amplified it to the point that people ended up believing some of the stuff like, oh, my God, I couldn't vote for her because, oh, my gosh, Pizzagate or, you know, whatever other crazy conspiracy theory. You were a lizard had. at one point, I think. A lizard. I mean, you know, I've murdered oh, countless people. You can't even keep track of all of them. And, and that kind of craziness is baked into the Republican right in this point in our history. So if you have been inflaming people to believe the worst about somebody, then calling up that name, using, you know, that shibboleth is a way of getting the base that you're trying to turn out to be responsive. But I think there's also a third element, and that is the combination of my being an effective woman who went further than any woman has gone. And there is something deeply unsettling to a strata of American voters about a woman getting that close to being president. So I see it in some of these articles where reporters go out and they interview somebody who said, well, I voted for Trump last time, but I'm voting for Biden today. 
and you get comments like some of my personal favorites, like, well, you know, the girl wanted to be in charge, you know, and I, you know, that was, that troubled me. Is that their voice? Is that their, Yeah, I'm making that, the voice. So there okay. is this combination of my having been attacked by the right for so long, my being a woman, being someone who is unapologetic about what I believe, where I stand and so forth, that is just infuriating. Why of all the governors who he was picking fights with, did he zero in on Gretchen Whitmer? Why? Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, why? Because she's, you know, she's an attractive young woman who stood up to him. And you just look at the unfortunate continuity of sexism and misogyny. We've made progress, don't get me wrong, but the cultural biases about women making tough decisions in the American political system is a surefire way to raise doubt or to throw red meat to people who agree with you. Do you fear if Trump wins the possibility they would try to take legal action against you? And you know he's pressuring the attorney general, look at Joe Biden. Do you feel any fear yourself? No, I I don't feel any fear because I know there's no basis for any of it. But it's expensive. It's annoying. It's an abuse of power. It's a misuse of the justice system. So it's a massive diversion, but it takes time, energy, and resources to defend yourself. And nobody wants that. Do you feel that if he wins, that will continue? Are you under any worries that that will manifest itself? Look, I mean, I can't entertain the idea of him winning. So let's, you know, let's just preface it by that. You can't? No. It it would cause cognitive dissonance of a grave degree. Why is that? Well, because it makes me literally sick to my stomach to think that we'd have four more years of this abuse and destruction of our institutions and damaging of our norms and our values and lessening of our leadership, and the list goes on. But there's no doubt that he would do everything he could to attack and punish anyone who was, in his view, an adversary. And he would be aided and abetted, sadly, by both elected and appointed officials. So, of course, one of the most important accomplishments that I hope we see in this election is a Democratic Senate, where that would be the check that we would need against further abuse of power. I I don't think he has any boundaries at all, Kara. I don't think he has any conscience. Uh, He's obviously, you know, not a moral, truthful man. So he will do whatever he can to lift himself up. And remember, as I said, He lives with this specter of illegitimacy. He knows more about how he got really elected than we still do. Uh, Hopefully we'll learn more in the years ahead. Time for a quick break. By the way, if you like what you're hearing, go to your podcast app and hit subscribe. You'll see any episodes you've missed and get future episodes automatically. More with Hillary Clinton when we come back. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. 
Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in perspectives at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Were you hoping it was going to be Biden in the end or someone else? I thought as the primary unfolded that it became clearer and clearer, if you were looking at underlying data, as I was, that Biden would have the best chance of winning, of beating Trump. And that was just because after a very slow start, he had really picked up and was winning primaries and was demonstrating real strength where he needed to. So, you know, I didn't endorse anybody. I was just watching it from the sidelines. But it did seem as though he would be uh, the candidate. Why was that? Well, I think part of it was because, sadly, whereas my experience in 2016 could be kind of pocketed and ignored, after seeing the train wreck that Trump was, experience actually counted for something. And here was a guy who'd been in the White House for eight years and understood how government was supposed to work. And so that was that was reassuring. And he had positions that the vast you know, majority of uh, Democrats really resonated with. And he looked like somebody who could pick up independent votes, maybe even some Republican votes, because there had been a growing rejection of Trumpism by traditional Republicans, you know, the Lincoln Project, Never Trumpers, those kind of people. So you put it all together, it looked to me, as he moved toward locking up the nomination, that he would be in a strong position. Now, nobody could figure out what would happen with the pandemic. That was unprecedented. And the way he's handled that compared to Trump, I think has also increased the comfort that people have with him and the feeling that, you know, he's a safe choice. We are advantaged, unfortunately, by four years of a record from Trump being the president. Did you want a woman candidate? There has been many more than ever before in the group. Right. I thought it was great. I mean, I've obviously talked to most of them. I've talked to most of the candidates before they got in. And I talked to a lot of them as the primary went on. When it started to narrow down, you know, a couple of them called and asked if I had any thoughts about how they could distinguish themselves, set themselves apart from, you know, the rest of the field, try out some debate kind of questions and answers. Who was Um, that? Was it uh, Senator Harris or... 
I talked to all of the candidates who got through the initial obstacles, other than probably Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard, I think. But I talked to everybody else. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Pete Buttigieg asked about how to keep morale up in the campaign, how to keep people on mission, but still, you know, supporting each other. I talked to Elizabeth Warren several times about policy, you know, what was going to really sell the economic policy that she was promoting or the healthcare policy. I mean, it was just, it was all kinds of, you know, Deval Patrick coming to see me when he decided he was going to get in late. And I said, you're getting in really late. I mean, you know, there wasn't much else to say because he's a very talented candidate if he had gotten in earlier. I mean, you know, it, it was just a lot of that. And it was great. I mean, I enjoyed talking to all of them. Obviously, I was pleased that there were more than one woman on the stage because the only way we're going to enhance and increase the power and the electability of women is to have more of them out there to normalize the experience. So it's not just, you know, one person that everybody's focused on. So speaking of women, what is your role in the campaign right now? You you spoke at the convention, but mm-hmm. you've not been as present. You're, what have you been doing yourself? Oh my God, I've been, you know, raising lots and lots of money primarily for Biden. But, you know, I did event with Nancy Pelosi for House members. I did an event last night with Tim Kaine for, you know, electing senators. I've done individual events. When I finish with you, I'm going to go do an event raising money for Democratic attorneys generals. I have spent an enormous amount of time doing virtual events of all sorts. And what about ads? Did they, did you want to participate in ads or things like that? No, I, I don't. No, I, I, that never crossed my mind. <laughs> okay. All right. So if, if Biden does win, because you can't entertain a Trump victory. I can't. Would you want a job in the administration? No, I don't want a job. I, I just want to be able to exhale. I mean, I want Biden and Harris elected. I've spent a lot of time talking to Kamala and, you know, I think she's going to be terrific. I can't wait for her to be there. I think that's a huge step forward. I answer any questions they have. I provide any information that they need. I'm going to do everything I possibly can do to help them be successful because that's really the most important thing now. But you don't want an actual a job like as you Mm-mm. did in the... I don't want an actual job. So when you're thinking about your role then, it's to be a counselor, like to be not officially, but to be there to answer questions to the next mm-hmm. administration coming in. Yeah, I've written a couple of articles. You know, I wrote a foreign affairs article because I think it's very important, and I believe from my conversations with the campaign's policy team, that they're really going to want to figure out how to integrate what I call domestic renewal into not just a national agenda, but an international one. And and there's just a lot of great opportunities. That's what I see more than anything. But knowing the system as I know it, it's going to have to be so fast to get organized, to get up and running, to get into the Congress. And we need a Democratic Senate to put a check on Trump if the worst were to happen. But equally importantly, to help Biden get things done quickly so people can see government works. All right. So let's let's talk about that. What would be, if elected, what should he do immediately? Well, I think that all is starting right now. You know, the transition operation is up and going and it's very, you know, robust. And they need to have literally outlines of legislation written. He's going to have to keep his promise about health care. 
put in a public option, move quickly. And depending on what happens in the Supreme Court, either save or resurrect the Affordable Care Act. He's going to have to get an economic stimulus. Uh, Mitch McConnell, for all of his reasons, won't do what Nancy Pelosi knows needs to be done. They're going to have to do it because people are going to, by that time, Kara, they will have run out of money. They will be hungry. It's going to be a very, you know, sad and important obligation that he has to get moving on quickly to help people out of dire straits. And what about the persistent influence of Trump then during that time period? Because he will still have power, presumably. Well, none of what I've just said can be done until we have a new Congress. I mean, once he's out, he still will have power. Yeah, but who cares anymore? I mean, <laughs> I I predict to I you. Know. Okay. I predict to you. Predict, please. I will. That he will maintain his hardcore support, but his influence will be so diminished because most Republicans are going to want to close the page. They have been cowards, spineless enablers of him. They want to see him gone as much as we do, but they can't say it publicly. So I think he will have little to no influence. Now, will he be able to rile people up and all the rest of it? Yeah, but He'll also be facing, you know, all kinds of investigations, particularly at the New York state level. Mm -hmm. Would you say lock him up? <laughs> no, I would never say that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. I believe in the rule of law, unlike some of these people. Okay. So court and investigations <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Well, they're on go. They're going. I yeah. mean, you know, he's going to be fighting over his taxes. He's going to be fighting over, you know, whatever else is revealed about business practices that, you know, Michael Cohn. It's a rough and, road for Donald Trump, you foresee. I, I think it will be, and and his family and his businesses. And the debt's going to come due. He owes that $420 million to somebody. And when he no longer is president, where's he going to get the funding to pay that back? I mean, are the billionaires who've been funding him to cause havoc in our country and lower their taxes, you know, are they going to step up and help him? I wouldn't be sure of that if I were him. Okay. What about foreign policy? And do you have a, an idea of who should be Secretary of State? I don't have an idea. I mean, that's, you know, totally whoever he's comfortable with. And Someone uh, he suggested knows. Barack Obama for the first year. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that uh, the former president would do that on a bet. He's got a lot of other irons uh, in the fire. All right. What is the first country you want Biden administration to repair relations with? I think that... Um, Look, he's going to have to reassure our European and our Asian allies. I mean, you know, we have treaties. We have all kinds of important alliance obligations that this administration has basically thrown up. We've got to pay attention to the adversaries who have been given free reign under Trump, uh, Putin and Xi Jinping and Erdogan and others. And if you look at how we're going to have to, you know, recalibrate the China relationship so that we can, yes, do business with them, but also try to work to limit their aggressiveness. I mean, taking over Hong Kong, threatening Taiwan, and to counter their influence. They're spending enormous amounts of money building infrastructure, buying friends across uh, the world, across Asia and Africa and into Europe. And I think that you have to try to deal with whatever is most urgent, because there's no way sitting here today we can predict that. I mean, but is... But you did discuss China as the primary adversary. China is the most consequential of the relationships. There's no doubt about it. 
How do you assess the way the Trump administration has dealt with China? They have taken aim at China, but it's mostly commies are bad, essentially. It's incoherent, inconsistent, unsuccessful. I mean, you know, the tariffs have hurt Americans more than they've hurt the Chinese. The Chinese have now basically gotten back on the past economic recovery because they, after lying about it, dealt with the virus effectively. So the Chinese are open for business and we aren't. So we're going to have to fix our own house in order to be as effective in dealing with the Chinese. And we're going to have to make it clear that uh, we're back in the region. They're not going to take over the South China Sea. They're not going to decide the future of South Korea or the Philippines or Taiwan uh, without us being involved. Are they our major rival at this point? They are our major rival. But there are other adversaries. Obviously, Russia is, you know, interfering all over the place. And it's our most threatening adversary in cyberspace. We know that. China's not far behind. The Iranians are pretty good. The North Koreans even are getting up there. But Russia remains the most aggressive and threatening in the gray zone of cyberspace. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you have a long Relationship with Vladimir Putin, I guess. So <laughs> apparently, so apparently, how, where, what is his fate? What do you think his fate is in uh, under a Biden administration? I think he has to face some consequences for his attack on our country because that's what happened in 2016. And from what even the Trump people say, it still is happening. We don't know everything that they're going to do yet in 2020, Kara. I worry a lot about that. Uh, The disinformation, as I said earlier, may not be quite as powerful and effective as it was in 2016, but we don't know how they're going to play in the actual election operations. And there's a lot of speculation about that. So a Biden president is going to have to try to figure out how to hold them accountable. I mean, even this administration, the Justice Department just indicted a bunch of Russians for stuff they had done trying to influence the election in France. You've got to have a clear message to Putin that, okay, the good times are over. There is so much about him that could very well be brought to light. Uh, A lot of people think he's the richest man in the world because, you know, that's how you do business when you're Vladimir Putin and you decide which oligarch will live or die. And part of it is, you know, how much they pay you off. He has suffered very little in terms of consequences for his, you know, rampage of poisoning, most recently with Navalny. I mean, you can't let that go unchecked. So accountability for Putin. Yeah, a lot of accountability for Putin and the kind of accountability that will hurt him personally, not just, you know, try to, you know, sanction Russian uh, oligarchs. Ah, take away his money is what you're saying. Yeah, well, or at least expose it more because there's, uh, you know, there's a lot to be uh, learned. So one of the one of the things that the Biden administration would also face was the Democratic Party going forward. The Republican Party has a reckoning Mm -hmm. of its own. Mm -hmm. It's changed a lot since 2016. What do you think of this shift? I don't see it as that big a shift. I, I mean, I I really don't. I, I think that, first of all, uh, Biden's overwhelming primary victory shows where the bulk of the Democratic Party still is. But I think it needs to have an injection of, you know, new ideas and new leadership at all levels. And, and that is happening, but that's kind of evolutionary rather than revolutionary. There'll be, you know, a lot of debate, as there should be, over how to proceed on health care. 
Biden has made it very clear how he wishes to proceed. And I think that's where the votes are. I don't think they are for, you know, a total government takeover of the healthcare system. So you don't see a, a sort of civil war within the Democratic Party that many are expecting? Oh, look, I think there will be a lot of, you know, jumping up and down and, you know, pointing fingers and, and making demands. That's kind of predictable. Mm -hmm. But is, should that be avoided or is that a healthy thing for that to happen? Can, yes, can... It's, it's very healthy. I mean, I look, Obama tried to get a public option on health care and was stopped by Democrats. Now he won't be stopped by Democrats. I mean, that's a huge change in just you know, it's too long for a lot of people, including me, but in a relatively short period of time. I also think that if the Supreme Court goes as far right as it's predicted it could with this new nominee, there's going to be an enormous amount of damage control and fixing things. I mean, when you have two sitting justices, Thomas and Alito, saying the Oberfall decision was wrongly decided and we're going to turn the clock back on gay marriage, well, we're going to have our hands full because the legacy of the Trump administration is going to live on, not with him so much as in the courts that he has packed with right-wing federalist judges. And so I think that a lot of the pent-up energy that you'll see in the Democratic Party is going to go toward both preventing harm and trying to fix the harm that the courts are going to permit and trying to push the envelope as far as possible. Do you believe there should be a larger Supreme Court? You know, I, I haven't really thought that through. I don't have an opinion on that. I think that that's going to be a decision that Biden is going to have to address because he's not going to want to lift a lot of heavy loads to get expanded health care and other climate change action, environmental protections, all the things that he has said he wants to do, which this court could very well upend. He's not going to want that to happen. Now, what is the best way to deal with that? I think there are, you know, a lot of scholars, academics are looking at a, you know, bunch of different approaches. Right. But you don't have an opinion on that right not now. Not right now, I don't. What about the, the Republican Party? Republican strategist Stuart Stevens said the GOP should burn it all down after Trump. Mm. Would you agree? Well, if he loses, as I expect he will, and if the Democrats take back the Senate, as I expect they will, then I think that's probably really good advice because he's done so much damage to the brand, particularly with young people. There is just reams of evidence about how young people are really appalled by what they see as the intolerance and the mean-spiritedness and hatefulness that comes from Trump and is echoed, unfortunately, by a number of others. And so if they expect to have a future, they're going to have to do a lot of, uh, you know, changing. So speaking of future, Biden is 77, Trump is 74. When you were on the ballot, you were 69, I think. Mm -hmm. Should we rethink age limits for president and bring in younger candidates? No, I don't believe in any limits. I don't believe in term limits. Well, there's one on the young end. Well, but, you know, yeah, you've got to be 35. But no, I don't think that we should either lower the age or end the age. Uh, people should be able to vote for whoever they want to vote, and and that should be respected. It, but the idea of bringing in the whole new crop of people, I want you to tell me who you think are the most promising candidates going forward in both parties. Look, I, I first of all, don't think that's the way to think about it. I think that voters are the ultimate judges of that. It doesn't matter what you or I think. If, you know, voters are comfortable with Joe Biden or if they were comfortable with Bernie Sanders, who's older, then, you know, that's their choice. Some people may say, hey, that's not a 
particularly defensible choice, but that's what voters get to do. And so I am not in any way for or against any particular age cutoff. I think what you've got to look for are people who have ideas, energy, and the practical experience to get stuff done. I mean, it doesn't do any good to just rhetorically engage in what you'd like to see changed if you had a magic wand. That's not the way a democracy works. That's not the way compromise, which should be respected in a democracy, not ridiculed, will work. So, you know, if people want to be in the arena, tell them to get in the arena. So who is promising? If you were to pick two promising candidates going forward, you know, who do you look at in each party? I'm going to force you to pick some Republicans. Yeah, you're, yeah and I'm not going to I'm not going to play that game. <laughs> All right, I mean, okay. look, if All right. if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are president and vice president, by definition, Kamala has a huge stage, a global stage, and she's young, she's vibrant, dynamic. I think, you know, people are really going to be very drawn to her. And so we don't know who's going to emerge. We don't know who's going to, you know, have the guts to run. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, it's an ordeal. You get out there and they lie about you and, you know, hurl all kinds of accusations. You got to be ready for that. You have to have really thick skin. All right. If you're not going to give me names of promising (laughs) young candidates or or older candidates, how about this prediction? When will America have a woman president? Mm. And who is it, if you had to guess? I, you know... I think it's natural to assume that when Biden doesn't run again or if he runs again and and is not successful, that the person who is likely to step forward is the vice president. I mean, that kind of is the way things work. Does that mean she'd be the only woman who run? No, I don't. I think the women who ran this time, I think that, you know, Elizabeth and Kirsten and Amy and maybe Gretchen and all kinds of other women are going to step up, too. And there are a bunch of women running for the Senate right now if we elect you know, more women senators from Maine and Iowa, for example, they're maybe going to throw themselves into the ring. I assume the Republicans will be looking at Nikki Haley and maybe some others along uh, that line to run. So I don't know. I do know that it remains a challenge for women to break that highest and hardest glass ceiling. You know, in this past primary season, none of the women won any caucus or primary. And so this is not going to happen easily or quickly. So we'll see. When writing about your famous quote, women's rights are human rights, Mm -hmm. you said rights are important, but nothing without the power to claim them. It's about power, who has it, who doesn't, how we confront the imbalance. And you noted that a lot of countries that did best in the pandemic were led by women, whether it was Jacinda Ardern, Angela Merkel, Do you think a woman president in the United States would handle the pandemic better? I have no doubt, especially if it were me. (laughs) No, I mean, I was born for that. I mean, that's why I knew I'd be a good president. I was ready for crises and emergencies, and I would have done what you see these women leaders doing. You listen to the science, you bring in people in an open, inclusive way, you communicate constantly, you make the case by explaining why what you're doing is in the long-term interest, not only of health, but also of the economy. Yeah, I have no doubt in my mind at all that I would have stepped up to that crisis. You've had so many chapters of your life. It's really (laughs) interesting. But your last one was your relationship with Trump and Mm -hmm. this sort of face-off, essentially. I feel like I'm in that movie, that John Travolta, uh, Nicolas Cage movie. How do you look at that relationship? Do you feel like that's going to be sort of historically a defining 
relationship or moment for you? Well, I think I live rent-free in his head. He does not live rent-free in my head because I have very little regard for him. And I believe that he has been uh, a disastrous president and has caused a lot of harm to what I care about in our country and around the world. So I don't really think about him much other than to do what I can to defeat him, because that, I think, is an existential crisis that we face. He, You know, he's a very hollow man. He has very little of interest to me. So I'm not thinking about him other than to try to retire him as quickly as we can. And what is the word you would use to people to vote the way you want them to vote right now? I think I'd go back to what Trump said at the end of the 2016 election, which often gets overlooked. What do you have to lose? And we now know that we have a lot to lose. Our health, our lives, our jobs, our livelihoods, the quality of our air, our water. We have a lot to lose. And there isn't a person in this country, regardless of how they describe themselves in uh, support or not of Trump, who doesn't have something to lose from four more years of Trump. All right. On that note. (laughs) Thank you so much, Secretary Clinton. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hibbet El-Orani, Matt Kwong, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Adam Teicholtz and Paula Schumann with music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Ezekiel Kwaku, Liriel Higa, and Kathy Tu. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get a new episode of Sway delivered to you with one of Hillary's emails, of course, download a podcast app like Stitcher or Google Podcast. Then search for Sway and hit subscribe. We release every Monday and Thursday. 